0: Each morning I write a to-do list, and know it won't get done. The things I put on this consist of work, but also of fun. Today I will read, today I will write, today I'll watch a springbird in flight. No need to be a realist, just sit in the sun, go for a run, and check these things off your to-do list. That's my poem entitled To-Do List.
1: Very beautiful.
0: Thank you. I
1: question its relevancy mm-hmm. to education, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm proud of you for... Putting your heart and soul into a poem.
0: Thank you. And I thought you'd question is relevance because you're a hater. Yeah. And I'm immediately going to tie it into today's episode, okay. which will be covering three things, including self-learning, how we can make society a bit more of a learning culture, and then what makes a good teacher. And the first thing is when I was looking into how to self-teach, I was looking at famously self-taught people throughout mm. history. Yeah. And one person who comes to mind is a really expert teacher is Leonardo da Vinci or an expert learner, I suppose. And a page out of his journal was actually one of his to-do lists, which I think we can learn a lot from.
1: Yeah. His journal has been on my reading list for a really long Mm -hmm. time.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to summarize one of his to-do lists because I think you'll find it really interesting if no one else does. So one of the things is Calculate the measurement of Milan and its suburbs. <laughs> the next thing is, find a book that treats of Milan its churches, which is to be had at the stationers on the way to Cardusio. Discover the measurement of the Corte Biccio. Get the master of arithmetic to show you to square a triangle. Ask Benedetto by what means they go on ice in Flanders. Draw Milan. Ask someone, how mortars are positioned, examine the crossbow of someone, find a master of hydraulics and get him to tell you how to repair a lock. Ask about the measurement of the sun. That's his to-do list.
2: Actually, yeah,
1: that, that really inspires me. Like yeah. Even just you reading those out, I'm like, I probably shouldn't put laundry and <laughs> make food on my to-do list every day because those are just subsistence
2: things.
0: Yeah, and the three lessons that I learned from this list was in order to be a better learner and be a self-taught person, you need to have a variety of things. So if your to-do list is just practical or just read these three articles, you're not going to grow the way that he would if you had such a variety of things that he did. Mm. He also consults a lot with with others, which I didn't say all their names because we don't know who they are, but there's a lot of people that he would consult with. He'd go ask them a question, go ask them to show him how to do something And the final thing, two of these included reading books. So reading helps you be a better learner. That's actually
1: pretty great, that thing you said about collaboration. It sounds more Mm -hmm. collaborative than a lot of our classroom learning. It's true. There's no reason, I suppose, that self-learning couldn't be that. We kind of, like when I hear that term self-learning, I think, or self-teaching, I think of someone holed away in a library Mm -hmm. and they've set a little curriculum of books to read or things to write for themselves. But all it means is that you are the person in charge, right? It doesn't mean you have to work in isolation.
0: Yeah, I also have the same assumption of what it means to be a self-learner, which is setting your own curriculum, setting what you want to learn, and then doing it yourself. But just because you work with other people to gain the knowledge is no different than reading it from a book, really, if not more effective.
1: Yeah, so, so the question was how to, or what are some kind of self-teaching methods and how can mm-hmm. we keep the same energy from high school and university, especially if you graduate or mm-hmm. if you are for some reason just saying, I'm done with public education.
0: which I feel like everyone gets to that point at some point or another. <laughs>
1: um, well, it is so tempting. I, I mean, I always wanted to be homeschooled in middle school and high school. I was always begging my parents, and they, their response was, Well, we can't, we don't have the time. We can't teach you. Mm-hmm. And I was always thinking, No, I don't want you to teach me. I want me to teach me. Yeah. <laughs> but that was just my kind of uh, antisocial behavior kicking into my adolescence, which wasn't a good thing. But tracking progress, yeah, as you mm-hmm. said, like setting goals or having a to do list of any kind is is a form of tracking progress, Mm -hmm. which is probably the most common type, as I mentioned with mine, even the most mundane things, we tend to put into a checklist. Mm -hmm. But I was also thinking along these lines, not just setting goals, but regularly kind of testing yourself so that you know if your methods are even working Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and also being very deliberate about always stepping up what you're doing so -hmm. that you never plateau and accidentally spend months on something, just kind of going through the motions. I've definitely been in that place.
0: Yeah, I just watched a TED Talk like immediately before this. And the man who was talking, he said, what does it take to be an expert learner? And everyone, of course, said 10,000 hours of work. That's what it takes. But the original research in that was to be an expert expert, to be a grandmaster, to be the best soccer player in the world, to be the best at something. But his theory was that to be a, to learn something, you don't have to put in the 10,000 hours, you have to learn to a point where you can self-correct which is kind of what you were saying like knowing if you're making progress Mm. because when you start out you don't even know so like getting to that point where you can hey I did that wrong that's really easy with like an instrument uh sounded off but also with language or whatever concept you're learning and another tip he suggested was putting in the like really committing to the first 20 hours because every single time you show up when you're really new to something you're gonna feel like an idiot and you're gonna be like Dreading it and procrastinating it, which is one of the biggest barriers to self-learning and putting yourself out there, sort of, because there's a lot of different barriers that people experience. Because there's no one like holding you accountable besides yourself, and procrastination is one of them. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's also the case that with the 10,000 hours thing, it's it's such a it's such a tweet-like statistic that mm-hmm. it's so easily understood and you can you can parrot it very quickly that not all hours are equal. Mm-hmm. We were saying that with French recently there's there's a difference between watching something in a really engaged way and really trying to understand it mm-hmm. and just kind of ha- passively listening to it as you do the dishes or something like that. Like there's yeah. a big difference. And yeah, I just think effort minimizing distractions is another key thing so mm-hmm. actually maximizing the time that you are studying for something And this goes in with my next point with regards to self-learning that is routine and habits and I'll just call it formality. Mm -hmm. And this can mean getting dressed. Yes. Like I find when I'm, I could be doing the same thing, but if I'm wearing pajamas for one of them, you kind of uh, take cues from, you know, maybe you're lounging on a couch or maybe you're just, not wearing any clothes or just Mm -hmm. with a blanket and it's it's a more casual occasion so Mm -hmm. maybe you're not putting that much effort into it and also having a time and a specific place for something I think can be really helpful being organized can Mm -hmm. help a lot having like because we're not in school we can say well I don't need any of that paperwork or binders or Mm -hmm. tests or I don't even need a desk the good thing is I can practice or study or read this whenever and wherever and I think that for a lot of people that doesn't actually work very well, which is why schools are the way they are, for the better or worse. It's very
0: true, yeah.
1: There's also that um, all those techniques about take 20 minutes on, five-minute break, or different mm-hmm. variations of that Pomodoro technique, which I think I don't want to acclaim one of them as the best, mm-hmm. but I just think having some kind of structure, I'm going to do this for X amount of minutes per day or X amount of hours per week, mm-hmm. And when I'm doing it, I'm not going to be doing or focusing on anything else. I think that's that's really important. And that's something that's really hard with, with um, like the pandemic has basically been this big widespread experiment in self-learning for a mm-hmm. lot of kids because they've been learning from home for the first time and their parents can't monitor them the same way that a teacher could in the classroom. And I think the effects of that with distractions and them basically not being held to, mm-hmm. to really do anything for any length of time as they are at school has not been a good thing.
0: Yeah, a lot of the tips I found were time-based, as you said, with setting specific times that you want to do things. And one of the things that really struck me from the Psychology Today paper journal, um, they said, okay, you have your whole Saturday off. So you say, I'm going to spend the whole day working on this course or working on this book that I'm reading through and working through. And then you wake up and you say, ah, I have the whole day. I'm going to wait until lunchtime. Then lunchtime rolls around and you're like, I'm kind of hungry. And then you eat and then you just get a little bit of work done, but you think, gosh, oh, maybe do the laundry. And then you end up getting like 15 minutes of work in in the whole day. Whereas if you said, okay, on my Saturday, I'm going to set aside 45 minutes and I'm going to prep my mind for this experience and prep my space and put kind of an equal amount of time into the preparation and the after care of that experience. And that's just leagues more effective Because there's a lot of research into how we can prep our minds for learning. And that could be taking a nap, drinking coffee, exercising, meditating, and then doing the learning. And then afterwards, kind of solidifying it with, again, some food, with a little bit of exercise, and like sandwiching it in between these traditionally pretty relaxing experiences. And apparently, that helps it integrate into your mind better and make the time that you spent. Way more effective, and you're not going to lose it.
1: Yeah. I would also say on that note, and without wanting to turn this into like a, like a self-help productivity mm-hmm. podcast, but if you have the whole day off, just do the thing immediately mm-hmm. and don't think about it, really. Yeah. Just say, I'm going to do this thing. Don't yeah. even say that. Just do the thing. Just do the thing. And then that'll get you in the mood for doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, my next point about <laughs> self-learning in the solo scene is that we won't just add things to our lives, we'll also subtract them. So Mm. the example is if you are wanting to commit to, say, learning an instrument Mm. and say you want to do this really properly, I want to in a year be able to do this, and you already have quite a full life as most people already do, Mm -hmm. you can't just add it on to your already full life and expect to keep juggling the same balls. You you have to remove some kind of distraction, which is fine because a lot of people do have a lot of distractions. It doesn't always Mm -hmm. mean that you have to make some big sacrifice but I just think that's something that it's not like you can just add an extra hour into your day because mm-hmm. there's still going to be only 24 hours. So you have to make room for it.
0: Yeah. And that brings to mind the idea sometimes when you think, oh, I'm going to devote an hour a day to practicing this instrument. And you think, oh, I have so much free time in my day. I'll just do it in my free time. The thing is, the free time of every day, so you have three hours of free time, it's not like you're literally doing nothing. You're either on your phone, you're watching movies, you're walking around or doing something, but we act as if we're actually doing like literally nothing and we can just insert that hour of productivity in the place of nothing, but it's actually going in the place of something, even if it's not super productive and is just scrolling on Instagram. Have to be intentional and have to assess your current situation before making these new goals. And another tip I saw was starting out a new project with mastery in mind which we talked a little bit about last week, actually, but painting the picture of like the end goal so that you can see yourself making progress towards it. And I think that's a really good idea.
1: Yeah, that was my final note as well, which was to stay motivated. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of the intrigue of learning, the way that we are mostly accustomed to it, is in a classroom setting, comes from Mm -hmm. learning as a collective and reacting to new things as a collective. That's kind of... uh, kind of fascinating when you're in it and when you're all actually engaged Mm -hmm. so with that all being removed and you're just learning by yourself you kind of have to replace it in other ways so that could be changing your methods somewhat frequently so that they stay fresh Mm -hmm. or yeah reminding yourself about why you're doing this
0: rewarding yourself for the work you put in because procrastination is just like a i don't want to start it because i'm going to have pain It's why you procrastinate, but if you associate a reward with your activities, I think that's really effective.
1: Yeah, I just think it's it's a much more deliberate necessity to try and stay passionate about something when you're just doing it by yourself, because Mm -hmm. you don't have everyone else to kind of raise the energy for you. You have to do it for yourself
0: every day. For sure. I had a few more like kind of practical techniques that we can use in our daily lives to be self-learners. One of them is using learning affirmations, which... Seems silly, but they're pretty important and powerful if you do, in fact, choose to use them. And you can say, "Okay, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to say this affirmation of I can learn anything or I have time to learn or I can do this. Just really simple learning affirmations to set your mind in the right tone, the right frequency for that activity. One other thing is setting the right difficulty, because as we know with trying to learn French, it's like, oh, I'm going to watch Peppa Pig in French. And it's like, this is too easy, but then it's like, I'm going to watch, what else could you watch in French? Like Harry Potter in French, maybe it's a bit too hard. So it's finding the right difficulty level where you're challenged, but you're not overwhelmed with the task at hand. And the next thing is to learn with a beginner's mind, which is a Zen Buddhist concept of like humbling yourself before you go into a learning activity and saying, just like kind of getting rid of all the preconceptions, all of the things that you might already think you know because then it's kind of hard to unlearn because that's just how our brains are wired we have these like schemas that already exist and we try and fit everything into them but that's not the best way to learn
1: that's true i just had a question come to me completely unrelated cool for next week which could be to design a solar library i like that because we can design the shelves we can design the books it's all going to look very so we're
0: Yeah, and we can do drawings, and if you're watching on YouTube, you can see the drawings, which you can every week with the organism of the week and whatever else we may show you. You never know.
1: Speaking of the organism of the week, the one for this episode is the
0: giant fur, the giant kelp. The
1: giant kelp fun reveal. Huh?
0: Ooh, I like that.
1: So this is Macrocystis pyrifera. Said that a little bit français. Um, And what I find really interesting about this giant kelp is that it's not a plant. What? Yeah, it's a eukaryote. (gasps) Just resembles a plant. So it's a eukaryote in the group called Cool. And they're not plants, but they do have chloroplasts. So Mm. think of that what you will.
0: I always love when animals have chloroplasts. It's just...
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem like it should be.
0: Blows your mind. Blows all those preconceptions out of the water.
1: These can be found all around the Pacific Ocean. They grow in kelp forests, which is why I drew two. Ooh,
0: because it's a forest. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> um, an individual algae can reach up to 45 meters in length. What? And they're also among the fastest growing organisms on the planet, Ooh. reaching up to two feet a day in acceleration.
0: That does Like, imagine watching that. You're seeing this thing...
2: Growing real time. Growing. Kind of, That's yeah.
0: wild. I wonder, in the movie, My Octopus Teacher... He was always swimming through these kelp forests, so I wonder if that's the type of kelp that was there.
1: I don't know what that is.
0: It was just a a random documentary from last year.
1: This is kelp (laughs) that has um, a lot of uses for animal feed and also human food, Mm -hmm. biofuel, and it is being farmed. It contains a lot of cool minerals, and it isn't endangered, but the kelp forest is the first ever endangered marine community Recognized by Australia. I see. Because it's kind of like an organism, but also pretty much an ecosystem.
0: Yeah, I see. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, they are kind of uh, diminishing because of temperatures mm-hmm. and also these invasive invasive sea urchins.
0: Yeah, they seem like they'd be very fragile, despite their, their volume and their mass. <laughs> they don't exactly have defense mechanisms, do they?
1: I guess. I also didn't come up with like a tie-in for this week's episode. That's so fine. Can you?
0: I said it. I said they, I, I think I said it. I don't remember what I said.
1: It's <laughs> <laughs> a great podcast moment. <laughs> I don't think you did say anything.
0: Okay, well, I cashed comfort. the tire. Well, they
1: remind me of something in SpongeBob. Yes. Because the way they kind of stretch up and they're all murky and green and brown, which I tried to kind of mm-hmm. illustrate with my green and brown, but they're very kind of dirty looking, cool, musty looking. So maybe that's kind of like kids, kids, because kids don't have very good hygiene.
0: Kids are murky sometimes, yes.
1: Speaking of murky, Mm -hmm. the next question for today is to try and straighten out the murky cultural attitude that we have towards education and learning in general. Mm -hmm. So we're going to be describing the wider cultural landscape in the Sohacene. How do we view education? And when I was preparing for this question, I was really feeling negative about the current, our culture. Mm -hmm. And actually I have done since I was very young in school. Mm -hmm. Um, But then we thought, and we kind of conversed and said, this podcast isn't about criticizing Mm -hmm. today, though. It's about painting a utopia. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So we should just be speaking all exciting, inspirational and positive things. Yes. So my first idea to promote positive, cultural learning habits is exchanges. Cool. I love that. Exchanges are awesome. I've always really wanted to go on one. Mm -hmm. We both kind of went on a mini exchange, but it wasn't really strictly educational. It was more Mm -hmm. of a vacation. (laughs) And this has been in my head ever since a few uh, weeks ago when I was researching Andrew Yang, the American politician, and his platform. Mm -hmm. And he has this idea for the American exchange program Mm -hmm. because of all the politics and the the um, what do you say? The partisanship in that country, which mm-hmm. is, as we say about big countries, they're basically continents. Yeah. So his idea was basically high school students should should pretty much all be experiencing high school in some other wildly different state. Yeah. And there's a ton of benefits proven because in Europe, Erasmus, their exchange uh, continental exchange program is very very popular. Mm-hmm. It's also a really rich historical education tradition in Japan, mm-hmm. and there's just like I was looking at statistics. It's all good things. There's a lot of job and academic benefits, but also personality-wise, there was this German study that found increases in all of the Big Five personality traits for people before and after doing a school mm-hmm. exchange, and it didn't even have to be very far. Those being agreeableness, extroversion, openness, conscientiousness, and emotional stability, and yeah. that, those all seem like good things for for students.
0: I agree, and the thing with the exchanges, even when it's not too far, as you said. It's building connections with people that you've never met. And when you live in a small town or even just you live in the same place your whole life, you're you have a very limited amount of people you can meet. But when you go on an exchange, you make these lifelong connections and then, oh, I'm looking for a job. Oh, I remember they worked in this field. I can ask them questions and so on. Because when you can you can Google things, you can Google the questions like, what should I do for this career? But Google doesn't know you. And Google also doesn't have the like serendipitous quality of like making connections the way that humans do. And I think it's very important to creating a well-rounded society, exchanges. Canada has a program where you can go from provinces to Quebec to learn French, which I always wanted to do, but never got to.
1: You just decided to do it yourself.
0: Yeah, <laughs> DIY, self-learning.
1: So I think scene, yeah, that would have a lot of exchanges.
0: Cool, I like that. scene for me, one of the things I was thinking of would be we would have a different outlook on when we're like solving problems. So as a society right now, we see a problem in the community, we think it's like a puzzle, like there's just one answer, and once we get to the answer, we just roll with it. But in the solo scene, I think we could when we look at a problem, okay, we have a solution, but keep like coming back to it and reevaluating our decisions so that things don't stagnate because that's how education gets to how it is today. It gets to a point where it's like, okay, this is how we do it, but we don't keep looking at it like a mystery or like a, a drama. We look at it as just a puzzle with a definite answer.
1: Yeah. That's a big phenomenon, right? in, mm-hmm. in all sorts of fields, every time you innovate quite frequently, the innovators are left behind mm-hmm. because they're stuck on that innovation, which then becomes actually rather old fashioned at times.
2: Yeah,
0: exactly. And that was something I'd never really thought of before until thinking about how we can make a culture of learning. And it's, yeah, the inquisitiveness and the open-mindedness, I suppose.
1: I also think the solo scene would have more of a culture that defines success as happiness rather than material wealth. Mm-hmm. And this relates to education because there's so many people who choose degrees and fields and jobs, and you know, lengthy periods of education, mm-hmm because it will give them a high-paying career. Exactly. And the matter of them actually enjoying it is secondary. And that (laughs) always blew my mind.
0: Yep. But I mean, it's like logical because you think, oh, I'll be able to create joy with this money and be able to create the experiences that I want in my free time. But it always lends to them having way less free time and way less time to actually do the things they want.
1: Yeah, I also think it works the other way because we... We kind of, as a as a culture, make fun of the people who get an arts degree. Mm-hmm. Oh, what are you going to do with that? And most often the answer is nothing, because an arts degree doesn't actually translate that well to jobs. Mm-hmm. But they committed to spending four years learning about Shakespeare. Yeah. And now they can read Shakespeare with more of a... With a critical with a, eye. Yeah, with more of a critical eye, and they'll enjoy it more. And I think we should kind of celebrate that as a, as a brave thing rather than mock it, because... It's not gonna have any immediate economic benefits.
0: Yeah, I think that's really powerful and something we should push for in the solar scene.
1: Yeah, I mean if they if someone wants to study something, knowing that it's not going to provide much of an economic future for them, but it will let them enjoy continuing to study that thing in their own time in the future or help them write plays
2: mm-hmm.
1: while working at a job that doesn't, you know, is, is irrelevant to the field, I think that's a mm-hmm. I think that's a good thing. So I think the Solo scene would would encourage education as a means of fulfilling one's own personality, one's own future, rather than becoming a cog.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think those types of people lend themselves to be good leaders. We traditionally elect people who are very stoic, who are very steadfast and really like convicted in like their beliefs. But I find those people who are willing to take the jump and this the opportunity to explore something that they're passionate about, they tend to be more open-minded and more willing to change. And the thing is, we don't want politicians who are out there flip-flopping every day or not necessarily politicians, but teachers and leaders in the community. But we still want them to be a bit flexible because things change. There's new information that arises. And this is a process called intellectual humility, which is, you know, you have the wisdom to know when to like not waver in your decisions, but you also have the openness to learn new things and change your perspective which is a balance that I feel like we often see as just one or the other. You either are steadfast and you're very conservative or you're super liberal and open-minded, but this intellectual humility is the m- melding of the two in order to create a create better outcomes and better leadership and actually respond to the needs of the people you are serving.
1: And that relates to the educational culture in the solo scene because...
0: Because right now, I feel like our educational culture is trying to create these people that are very, like, strong and stoic and unemotional, and you do things very pragmatically. Is that the word? Pragmatic? Very practically? But in the solo scene I think people will be a bit more creative and curious, and that will lend itself to the culture as a whole. The first thing I thought of when we were thinking of the learning culture in the Solacene was public lectures, which I just love. And when you're living on a university campus, there are often public lectures, and you can attend them if you don't go to the university. But when you don't live on a campus or near a campus, you're out of the loop. You don't know about these, and it's been it's like a human tradition for thousands of years to have these forums and these places where people go and exchange ideas. I think that needs to come back.
1: Yeah, because the, I mean, the current way it only reinforces this notion that academics is very insular mm-hmm. and elitist. And so too are academic journals and articles paywalled, so you can't mm-hmm. access them as a regular person. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the social scene things will be a lot more accessible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It won't just be the case that, oh, information, that's only for rich people. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I know. One other thing that I find we do today is we think that there's this notion that, oh, if everyone knows everything, everyone has access to Google, there's no creativity. But I was reading a bit about the effect of Google and the effect of our access to information on our creativity. And it says you have to be intentional about it and use it as a tool. But if you know nothing, like if you never went to school or you never read a book, like you're not going to know the questions to ask to come up with the novel answers and the novel solutions. So I think in the Sola scene, we will definitely encourage lifelong learning and lifelong intake of just facts and. Things that make us like sure in ourselves when we do have these conclusions, these novel ideas, that we feel, oh, this is actually a good idea. Because right now it's like, and you come up with an idea and you don't really have any reasoning for it or you don't, it's not based on facts, you feel slightly like no one's gonna care, no one's gonna listen. But in the solo scene, it'll be very like people will be very confident in their knowledge and then therefore their ideas.
1: Yeah. The other thing I like about public discourse is that it challenges people because too often now it's so easy to completely abstain from popular discourse and say, but I like these conspiracy theorists online. Mm -hmm. I'm going to talk to them. And I actually had this quote about misinformation and just the idea that today everyone thinks of themselves as an expert in everything. Mm. It says we've come full circle from a pre-modern age in which folk wisdom filled unavoidable gaps in human knowledge through a period of rapid development based heavily on specialization and expertise and now to a post-industrial, information-oriented world where all citizens believe themselves to be experts on everything. It's a quote from Tom Nichols, an article called America's Cult of Ignorance, which is itself an excerpt from his book The Death of Expertise.
0: Ooh, that sounds like a good book. Yeah, it does. I'd like to read it.
1: Um, But we were talking today just about how it seems that there's much more of a rising sentiment against the very idea of grading knowledge.
2: Mm.
1: and we see it a lot politically. There's 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 very much a distrust and a distaste towards any proclaimed experts, Mm -hmm. but I think expertise should be celebrated. I think it should be shared as as much as possible. I think it should be accessible, but I also think it should be celebrated. Mm -hmm. I think we should kind of, uh, as you said about intellectual humility, there should be much, much more of an acknowledgement of the things that we don't know. And that's something, ironically enough, that actually characterizes, I think, a lot of high-level academics and and Mm -hmm. scientists. They know most of all what they don't know themselves individually and also the field collectively. For
0: sure. Yeah, there's definitely a spectrum of people who think they know it all sitting in their armchair (laughs) versus people who actually do know it all and they say, I don't know.
1: Yeah, well, I I was reading this this other article about um, the war in Ukraine, Mm -hmm. the conflict in Ukraine. And they were polling a bunch of people on the streets, first saying, point to Ukraine on a map. Mm -hmm. And almost nobody could. Mm -hmm. And then saying, should we, I think it was the United States, be involved in the war in Ukraine? Mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. Yes, we should be involved, correlated directly with people not knowing where Ukraine was, Mm. which I think is funny. So it's almost like, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a culture that celebrates ignorance and...
0: Doesn't think that we need to, like, validate our opinions or actually...
1: Yeah, exactly. Like we just need
0: to have an opinion about everything and mm-hmm. have a, a an idea of everything that's happening, but no actual like depth to it. Perhaps yeah. way
1: too much blurring between opinion and fact. Mm-hmm. I even see quite often people citing, "Oh well, the, the, did you see what the New York Times is saying or the Washington Post?" And it's like, but those might be editor; those are quite often editorials, mm-hmm. meaning that it's not actually the New York Times, that's just someone's opinion. Mm-hmm. But I think there's there's some, such a blurring of the line now because everything looks the same when it's tweeted or when it's sure. when it's published. Yeah. Moving on to something more positive in the solo scene, I had the idea of celebrating effort because today we' even mentioned it with da Vinci and I think I said somebody else. We have so much of a culture of celebrating the and putting on a pedestal and being fascinated with and I understand why, but we focus almost exclusively on the few real, real outlier geniuses, mm-hmm. the really mercurial um Mozart who mm-hmm. you know were obsessed with the Wonder Kid or just the really really atypical success Mm. stories whereas i mean as i say i understand why we do that but i think it might be more productive if in the solo scene we shed some more spotlight on the people who aren't mozart but Mm -hmm. worked and worked and worked and really really tried to understand music until they became Mm mozart-esque
0: yeah i agree with that i often reflect upon the fact that we don't know any modern inventors names for the most part besides Elon Musk and the whatever but I think we should know the people who are coming up with vaccines who are coming up with these technologies that we use every single day you mean and the, like the, the actual, actual people
1: the actual Tesla engineers right? yes. not the CEO yeah <laughs> yeah I would agree with that as well but yeah. I, I think this filters down because we ha- we see this kind of shunning of effort it's not mm-hmm. that we don't celebrate it we, we kind of shun it like had the example of it starts in, in school with the kids who Maybe go in for extra help.
2: Mm-hmm. It's like
1: they're not going to be, people aren't going to say, oh, good for you.
2: Yeah, they're, they're going to be made fun, fun of. of.
1: Or let's say the person trying to lose weight at the gym.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: No one's going to say good for you. Everyone's going to kind of make fun of them. And I think that's so bad. And I think yeah. in the, the solo scene, there would be such so much more encouragement. Mm. Because when someone's trying, that's that's like the most... The best thing in the world. Yeah, the that's people trying.
0: wildly inspirational because I feel like the running or the gym is a really good example. So you see someone riding on the side of the road, just out of breath, just like exhausted. We've all been there when yeah, you're getting back it. into running. I love it. You're like, whoa, these, this person is putting themselves out there for everyone to see and just right, literally brave. inflicting pain upon Very themselves. Brave.
2: We
1: always say every time we see a cyclist on the side of the road, yeah, really, really struggling up yeah. the hill, especially <laughs> if they don't look like a professional cyclist. Yeah. I'm always like, man, good for you. Yeah. Because I've been there myself.
0: Exactly. The We've all been there.
1: The Up hills the hills.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: another couple examples I had for this in school, and I feel bad because I like, internalize this. Since you, you start to purvey that um, notion yourself and you yourself start to become an effort hater. Mm. So in school, especially if you, things come naturally to you in math class or whatever, by the time you hit adolescence often, you start to not try. Mm. and worse than that you kind of have a you kind of look down on the people who do try and we have this culture in school as I say we focus on like the the kid geniuses um, to the detriment of the kids who aren't the kid geniuses mm. but who get A's through effort because they're actually preparing themselves much more for life as well because the kid genius at some point is gonna hit the wall yeah and they maybe won't want to demean themselves with trying or whatever
0: yeah a fun example I suppose is I had this friend and up until about the fifth grade, they always had like a pretty low reading level. But Then in the fifth grade, they said, OK, I'm going to get help. And they started working. And then when they graduated college, they had all 90s in their courses. But then when you say to them, hey, you did really good. They'd be like, no, I'm stupid. Because of that like really early experience of being considered less than or less like competent, they never considered themselves to be
1: Right. Say I'm stupid. I just... Well, I just study hard. Yeah. But exactly. studying hard, that, like that just is <laughs> that is being smart. There, yeah. is, no, there is no difference, at exactly. least when you're an adult. Like there's some people who learn, pick things up quicker. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, it's just how much time mm-hmm. you put into it and, exactly. uh, and how effectively you study. Yeah. Um, I was also thinking in middle school, I remember really vividly the first time I was ever called a try hard mm-hmm. as like a pejorative. Yeah. And I, I was confused. I was like, what does that mean? They're like, well, it means you try hard. Because I was probably sweating in gym class or something mm-hmm. or trying really hard in a math test.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And at that point, you, you, you feel bad because like, oh, I guess I shouldn't try hard anymore. Yeah. But why do we use that as an insult? <laughs> and I was thinking about other cultures, like in Asia, um, where it's much more of a Confucian ideal, um, mm-hmm. him the old Chinese philosopher about um, hard work. And I know that can be detrimental because kids can get worked to the bone or whatever. But mm-hmm. I, I really do think effort that should be so, so prioritized and celebrated. And along with that is patience. Because mm-hmm. again, I think we have a really short-sighted, Short attention span when it comes to success in in at least the West, mm-hmm. which is when it comes to learning. It's like, but I tried for a week mm-hmm. and my grades weren't picking up.
0: Yeah, for sure. And in the Soul scene, I think there'll also be room for this effort to occur. The example of the Reich brothers, which I didn't know until preparing for this episode, but their parents were both like just pretty average education wise. Neither of them were like super experts in anything but their mom would let them take I think a half day or one day off a week from school or from their formal education to just do what they want and that's the time that the two of them would get together and they would build little airplanes build little bikes build little machines and that's how they became experts I thought was just like having the time to try hard and having the time to put in this extra effort that everyone else might consider silly but developing something in themselves and developing something that society needs.
1: Yeah, not just the time, but the place. Mm -hmm. I think having libraries, having rooms in schools, having a modicum of quiet in the home or a desk for the kids, like that makes Mm -hmm. such a giant difference, and for adults as well. Mm -hmm. One final um, example I had of this, just because it's one of my favorite videos on the internet, is Cristiano Ronaldo, the football player, Mm -hmm. was giving some kind of Q&A, and there was some kid... um, I don't remember where he was from, but English wasn't his first language. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he was trying to speak Portuguese to Ronaldo, I don't remember. Mm-hmm. But he tried speaking it, and it was really slow and really stuttery because he was very young and obviously mm-hmm. just practiced this for this one moment. Mm-hmm. And the whole room of adults was laughing at him. What? Yeah. So That's, you, like, heartbreaking. You don't realize how ingrained this is. And Ronaldo stopped them all and said, whoa, whoa, like, he's, he's trying to <laughs> speak this language. You should respect it. But,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, we, we don't we really don't realize how ingrained it is to, to mock people for trying
2: mm-hmm.
1: until you really take a look at it. Yeah. So in the solo scene, everyone will be applauding a child. That's yeah. What I'm trying to say.
0: They should be. Oh my goodness. I love when kids and just people do that in general. They learn a line of something in a different language or they learn these few little snippets of something that they can like share with their idol or share with even just someone that they look up to. That's really great.
1: That story really shows off Ronaldo as a good teacher.
0: It does. And... I was worried about where you were going with that Ronaldo story, given <laughs> that he's currently in the news for slapping someone. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, other than Ronaldo, he's perhaps a good teacher. I don't know if I that's know. the case, but we wanted to talk about what good teachers are because that's a big question. There's It really depends on what they're teaching, where they're teaching, who they're teaching. But some general principles, perhaps for just if you want to become a teacher yourself in your day-to-day life teacher to your friends teacher to your kids teacher to whatever that's how i took this question I'll yeah
1: least. there's a lot of different types so we're, we're kind of trying to define what the teaching staff of the solo scene looks like mm-hmm. and i wanted to be positive with this one as well and not just criticize teaching today mm-hmm. but i didn't want to go with this kind of cliche generic phrase and i hope you didn't i don't i don't, I don't want to insult you i hope you didn't uh, have it <laughs> noted which is that Good teachers inspire. You know, bad teachers will tell you what to do. Good teachers will make you motivated to do it yourself. But I feel like every time when well, I was looking for quotes about teaching or mm-hmm. um, stories about good teachers versus bad teachers on the internet, it was all just the exact same thing mm-hmm. about good teachers inspire, which is, of course, true. I mean, mm-hmm. that, that's kind of the baseline. Yeah. In terms of some other kind of universal traits that I found, um, I think authenticity is really important because mm-hmm. students see straight through authenticity, whether that's the older teacher trying to use memes mm. or whatever it may be. I really think they'll just respect the older teacher if they act what they are, which is out mm-hmm. of touch with the internet. Yeah, and There's nothing wrong with that. So I think authenticity, especially in the way that you communicate with your students, is important.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Another one is good people skills in the sense that you can read a room and assess also what each student needs to To be pushed and when to push them is an important thing.
0: Yeah, being a facilitator. Hmm. That's very important. That's one of the key things I came away with after looking into teaching. I also had some good teaching quotes and stuff. One of them is from John Dewey, who is like a famous educational theorist. And it says, education is a deliberate process of drawing out learning, of encouraging and giving time to discover social process, a process of living and not a preparation for future living which I think is, it's the te- good teachers inspire, bad teachers just like lecture. But it takes it, it really flushes out that concept, I think.
1: Yeah, I also like how that ends, as in, it's this isn't just practice for the future, mm-hmm. for your life as an adult. It is that, yeah. but it isn't just that. Because mm-hmm. then then it's just, it is just a, a kind of economic conveyor belt, And why not? Mm-hmm. But it's also about that, like that time isn't just throwaway time that mm-hmm. you're sacrificing so that you can, be a better smarter more profitable adult Mm -hmm. that's just lifetime yeah it's not a waste
0: yeah i also like just the definition that i found of teaching and or pedagogy is that how you pronounce that word um as a way of being and interacting that involves joining with others to bring flourishing and a relationship to life so that's the animation of experiences which is a task of a teacher And being concerned about their and others' needs and well-being and taking practical steps for help. So teachers should be caring and, as you said, assessing the needs of the room, assessing the needs of their students and taking care to address them. And the final one is encouraging reflection and being committed to change, which is the education portion that we traditionally see committed to enacting a change in these children's brains and enacting a change in how they interact with the world. And I liked that three-part definition of a good teacher because it's education is only one of them. There's also the caring and the bringing to life the animation of these experiences and these concepts.
1: How would you say your history of teachers has been on the on, in the main, mm. good or bad?
0: I've been pretty fortunate. I've had a lot of really good teachers. I think so as
1: well, but I think that everyone thinks that because I was yeah. looking into the statistics and also I was thinking about my own past and I was like, well, I've actually had some really good teachers even though I went to some not-so-great mm-hmm. schools. Yeah. And I was thinking... Wait, but why is that? Why, How? Why? even though we did all the 12 years of public school plus mm-hmm. university, why can I pretty much count on one hand the actual bad teachers that I've
2: had? Mm.
1: It seems like that there's a much higher ratio of good to bad professionals in this space than there mm-hmm. are in most other jobs. And I was thinking that, well, it's quite a grueling
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, process to get into. yeah, And also, it, it kind of self-selects for the most dedicated yeah. people because otherwise, you're just going to get turned away by mm. what is... To, to quite a lot of people, quite, a, quite an undesirable uh, job, depending on the kids that you're teaching. And I found this statistic that 44% of new teachers quit the career within five years, mm. which makes, I mean, like, again, it's only a few make it, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, 79% of students say a teacher encouraged them to follow their dreams. Mm. So I think what you just said, well, I've actually been quite fortunate. What I find funny is that everybody would say that. Yeah, for sure. And two-thirds of students say they consider a teacher a role model, which seems to me like this is a really successful system. It's yeah. working. The teachers that we have today are really good. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking that more so than just the individual teachers being inspirational, good mm-hmm. communicators, knowledgeable, and so they will be allowed to teach
2: mm-hmm. how
1: they want to teach. Like The teachers are good, so having more of them,
2: mm-hmm.
1: more of each one, is actually just a really good thing. So this can mean the administration and the school itself, the school board, providing adequate support Mm -hmm. to the teacher's needs and wants and also um, discipline to not kind of undermine the teacher's authority. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, just just giving them autonomy and authorities. We were talking about at Hogwarts Mm -hmm. over their classroom and also their curriculum. Yeah. You know, having it be their their mini-dominion, of course still governed, Mm -hmm. but having the classroom be its own world I think is a really really great thing. Something that I find funny about education is that almost every good classroom, we're like, wow, the teacher's doing a great job, or every bad classroom must be a rotten teacher. Mm -hmm. But it's like, it's actually a two way dynamic. Mm. The children form, like, they way outnumber the the teachers. So they have to be good as well. Yeah. I mean, no one ever wants to blame kids, but sometimes kids are to blame.
0: Sometimes. Yeah. They have one bad experience with the teacher, and then they just give the teacher, they've just Wreak havoc for the rest of the year because they don't give the teacher a chance. And one other thing that I was thinking about good teachers is that if you're a good teacher, you're like a good teacher, that's your thing. And it's a difference from being a good scientist. Because I'm sure the best scientist in the world couldn't walk into a classroom and teach the kids that concept. But a good teacher could perhaps go and learn the scientific concept and instruct it to anyone, even if they don't have a background in science. Mm. And I think in the solo scene, it will be mixing the two so if the teacher perhaps is interested in a subject you'd say we'll support you to go and learn this new thing and you can come back and teach it to our kids because we value you as a teacher and the fact that maybe you only knew English before we'll support you to go and learn this new subject and come back and teach it because we like you
1: what are your thoughts on teachers like say a science teacher giving life lessons in their classrooms I'm sure you had <laughs> that in, in school I think we all did
0: I always appreciated it to be honest, because these are the people that you see every day, and they know you, and then they just like, when they're going to take that time to give you a life lesson, it's probably they've observed something amongst the community in the classroom exactly, yeah. that needs to be addressed, and they often do it in a really good way.
1: I think so. I yeah. think that's what I mean by letting teachers teach. I think if you trust the individual, and mm-hmm. you should, if they're teaching children, mm-hmm. then they should be allowed to kind of... Like I had one teacher who was just a science and math teacher in middle mm-hmm. school and everybody loved him, mm-hmm. even though nobody, almost nobody loved science and math because he would, he just instilled such um, a sense of effort and hard work. People always tried harder in his classes than other ones. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't for him. It was just because he, he was very good at at a really important time in most kids' lives in they're 13, 14, 12, instilling the importance of you have to do this for you. You have to keep the standards mm-hmm. up. And teachers are, are the best place to do that. Yeah,
0: especially because the teachers, as I said, they get to observe these kids in these interesting environments that kids are often in at the home where they maybe are learning lessons or even in like sports or whatever. They get to observe these kids trying and struggling and interacting with one another. And then they can then say from their experience, hey, guys, how about today we talk about being nice? Yeah, Or, you know, something more specific of working hard or something like, I'm trying to think of an example from my experience, but I've had just so many great teachers doing, like just really going out of their way. And one was my English teacher. She used to teach at a university and was like super involved in teaching at university. But then she said to us, she was like, you can be like at the top of something and really making a ton of money. But then if you don't follow your heart, like her passion was teaching younger kids or high school kids English and getting them excited about it she said if you don't follow your heart maybe you have to make sacrifices financially and sacrifices and your status you are not going to be happy like she was giving us like that's such a personal example and like just kind of opening up herself to us but it inspired so many of us to say hey we're not going to just do stuff for money or we're not going to just
1: we're going to start podcast
0: yeah <laughs> so she, yeah she was really excellent and my sister actually told me because she has her now, which is like six or eight years later from when I had her. And <laughs> she was like, she, my sister walked into her class one day wearing an outfit that she made. And my sister was like, she's pretty smart. And she like she could do whatever she set her mind to. But the teacher said, have you ever considered a career in fashion? Like you made that outfit? And my sister was like, I always wanted to, but like that's a, that's kind of silly to study fashion when I could become a vet, or I'd become a doctor or whatever. And the teacher was like, No, like, you're good at it. If you like it, just do it. And then my sister's really carried that with her ever since. And she's still not graduated, so I don't know what she's going to do. But that was just a, yeah, this teacher, she was really great.
1: (laughs) Can we come up with any more universal traits of the Solacene teacher?
0: Hmm. I think the Solacene teachers are always, like, learning. They're not just, you are a good teacher. They're always becoming and always changing and reevaluating themselves. Because it is frustrating as a student when a teacher oh, okay, this worked 10 years ago, but it's not it's still working. I agree. And I'm not saying they have to be adopting means and throwing in YouTube videos for the sake of it, but still adopting a bit.
1: I would say if they have an eye towards the student experience, you know, that, that kind of is just another way of rewriting that they care about the students, but also trying to put themselves into the shoes of the students saying, well, I'm going to be sitting here in the math class for an hour every day for eight months. Mm-hmm. Maybe... I'll make the room look nice. Yeah. And again, I know these are all undercut by the administration, the school, and the school board giving them the room to do this, but mm-hmm. in the solar scene, that's all taken for granted. So designing the ideal classroom, has to be for next week as well.
0: Ooh, I like that idea. So the
1: library with the classroom. Is there anything else we can do? Gymnasium? Cafeteria? <laughs>
0: the whole school, I suppose. The grounds. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> the The hut.
0: Hagrid's hut? Yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the forest. Oh. No, but I mean... There's so many different types of teachers that all work. And it's mm-hmm. in Harry Potter because you have Hagrid and he's mm-hmm. he's very um, not exactly learned,
2: mm-hmm. but he
1: knows more about magical creatures than everybody else. Mm-hmm. But he's very experiential, mm-hmm. very imperial. He has the students do a lot of hands-on work. And then you get, say, McGonagall, mm-hmm. who's very strict and very orderly, organized academic. Yeah. But they both work. So I I think this is, again, about being true to yourself and Mm -hmm. to go back to administration and kind of standardization, not having to be squeezed into certain boxes, Mm -hmm. which I can imagine is so frustrating as a teacher.
0: Yeah. I mean, teachers, they're crazy people in the best way. They're just...
1: It's a strength. Yeah. (laughs) It's a durability.
0: Yes. Perhaps next week we could go through a Solacene curriculum as well. Yeah. Like what the teachers could be teaching. Sure. And come up with some ideas surrounding Yeah, how they we already talked about how we they could teach, but like yeah, what they could be
2: teaching. Well to
1: plug the zine. Yeah. We have the idea of a a typical school load for a kid mm-hmm. in I think eighth grade in the SOA scene. Um mm-hmm. that's SOAS zine issue two education, available yep. via the link in the description. But I like the idea of just picking a subject and saying this is how it's gonna be t- taught mm-hmm. in the soacene, I think is what yeah. you're talking about. The methods.
0: Yeah, I think that'd be a fun thought experiment.
1: Sweet. So thanks for listening, everybody. We hope that you're enjoying this education series. If you do enjoy it, give a like. Subscribe. Give a a thumbs up or a subscription. I don't know. That doesn't doesn't sound very natural coming out of me, but (laughs) do whatever you want. Comment. That's one. Give us a rate on the podcast app. Yeah. Those are really lovely.
0: They are very helpful, and we almost always will like reread them a bunch of times to each other when you leave comments or... Reviews. They're just very encouraging.
1: I don't know if we reread them a bunch of times. I do. I smile. I reread them. Bye.